host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 24 of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases, while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying a blueberry cold brew, so grab yourself a fresh brew, and let's get into the mysterious case of the unidentified Somerton Man. Referred to as Australia's greatest mystery, the unknown, nameless Somerton man washed up on the shores of Adelaide in December of 1948 and has to this day never been identified. Though it may not seem like it, most murders really aren't that difficult to solve. This death, however, baffles law enforcement to this day, and the case is so opaque that not only do we not know the identity of the Somerton man, we don't know what killed him, and it can't even be said for sure if foul play was involved. All that can be said for this case, even after so many decades, is that it is one of the world's most perplexing cold cases to date, and one of the most mysterious in history. On the evening of November 30th, 1948, a jeweler named John Bain Lyons and his wife were taking a walk down Somerton Beach, a seaside resort about seven miles south of the nearest city of Adelaide. As they were walking, they saw a well-dressed man lying on the sand, and as they watched, He extended his right arm upwards before letting it fall down once again. Lyons didn't think too much of this at the time, assuming it was a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette. A half hour later, another couple saw the same man in the same position, however, this time he was completely motionless. They decided that he was just asleep, and when they noticed mosquitoes surrounding him, the boyfriend joked, quote, he must be dead to the world not to notice them, end quote. On December 1st of 1948, at 6.30am, the police were contacted about the man who had been spotted by both couples the night before, except this time, the callers were reporting a dead body. That morning, 16-year-old Neil Day was riding horses with a friend on the beach when they spotted the man lying there, thinking at first that he was only sleeping, until they returned on their way back to find that he was actually dead. He was lying with his head resting against the seawall, his legs were extended, and his feet were crossed. There was an unlit cigarette on the right collar of his coat. He also had with him an unused train ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach. He had bought the ticket and then instead made his way to the beach by bus. Also in his possession was an empty packet of juicy fruit, a comb that was manufactured in America, an army club cigarette packet which were manufactured in Britain, and a box of matches. He had no wallet, no cash, and no ID. The body arrived at the Royal Adelaide Hospital about three hours after it was reported, where Dr. John Barkley Bennett estimated his time of death to be no later than 2 a.m., and noted that it was likely the result of heart failure, adding that he suspected poisoning. A full autopsy was done the next day, which didn't reveal much that could be helpful. The pathologist John Dwyer said that this man had a, quote, Britisher appearance and estimated his age to be from 40 to 45 years old. In general, his belongings, as well as his ethnic look, suggested that he could have been Australian, European, or potentially American. He was in extremely good physical condition, quote, 180 centimeters, or 5 feet 11 inches tall, with gray eyes, fair to ginger-colored hair, slightly gray around the temples, with broad shoulders and a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labor, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes, and pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed ballet, end quote. This emphasis on his good physique and the strength of his calves led some investigators to believe that the man must have been some sort of athlete, some thought ballet, and some thought soccer. 
He was clean-shaven and wore a double-breasted jacket and suit with, quote, American tailoring, which was cleanly pressed. Detective Raymond Lean told the inquest, quote, he had either been in America or bought the clothes off someone who had been there. Such clothes are not imported, end quote. And the labels of all of his clothing had been removed. His last meal was a pasty that was eaten four hours before he died, and there were no foreign agents in his body, however there was some blood in his stomach. Despite this, the suggestion was that internal bleeding and an over-enlarged spleen could indicate untraced poisoning. There was no trace of poison found, despite repeated tests by an expert chemist, and the pathologist himself was shocked that no trace of poison was found, saying, quote, I was astounded that he found nothing, end quote. However, it was found that there was intense strain on some of his organs before he died, including his heart. The only other things to really be noted in the autopsy was that his pupils were unusual and smaller than normal, and his liver was distended with congested blood. No cause of death was able to be determined. The Adelaide coroner, Thomas Cleland, was then left with essentially nothing. However, he did include in the report that the death was, quote, not natural, end quote. The possibility of a quickly decomposing poison seemed the only likely explanation, however, without any trace of it, moving forward with that theory was relatively impossible. The coroner's final report of his investigation was published in 1958, concluding with, quote, I am unable to say who the deceased was, I am unable to say how he died, or what was the cause of death, end quote. South Australian police put out an urgent bulletin, and many people came to view the body, but no one could identify him. Fingerprints were taken and circulated through Australia and beyond, but nothing came of this. He was embalmed, and a death mask was created for him out of plaster, and the Somerton man was promptly buried after his death, and local residents actually paid for a headstone and funeral plot so that he could be given a proper memorial. The headstone read, quote, Here lies the unknown man who was found at Somerton Beach, 1st December, 1948, end quote. By January 11th of 1949, the South Australian police had dismissed almost every lead that they had, so they widened the investigation to try and find any abandoned personal possessions that could suggest the Somerton man had been traveling. They checked every hotel, dry cleaner, lost property office, and railroad for miles, but did actually come up with something on the 12th a brown suitcase that had been left in the coat room of the Adelaide Railway Station on November 30th. Unfortunately, the staff didn't remember anything about the owner, and it didn't contain much. A reel of orange thread that matched thread that had been used to fix a Subberton man's pants was the most notable, especially since this was a type of thread not sold in Australia. The other items included a stencil kit, table knife, and a coat stitched using a feather stitch unknown to Australia, believed to be American in origin. The case had no markings, and tags were missing from all but three items, which bore the name Keene or T. Keene, but police could not trace anyone by this name, and they actually believed that this name was only on the items to intentionally obscure the man's identity. The lack of clues in this case is bizarre, however, the most iconic one was discovered months after the discovery of the body of the Somerton man in April of 1949. A tiny piece of rolled-up paper with the words Tamam Should was discovered within his pockets by John Cleland, an emeritus professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide. It had not been noticed previously because this was reportedly a, quote, secret pocket, end quote, maybe intended to hold a fob watch. The words were not handwritten, but they were printed onto the slip of paper. 
A local well-read library official was able to make the connection between the words on this paper and the last page of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The Rubaiyat is a Persian book of poetry that is attributed to the Persian wordsmith Omar Khayyam, and the words Tamam Shud were said to mean the end or ended. At face value, this suggested that the death might have been a suicide, and in fact, the police did never turn this case into a full-blown murder investigation. Police immediately began searching for this book and happened upon a 1941 edition when a man walked into the detective office on July 23rd with a very strange story. He claimed that in December, just after the body was found, him and his brother-in-law had gone for a drive in a car that he kept parked a few hundred yards from the beach. His brother-in-law found the book lying on the floor by the rear seats, and each man believed that it belonged to the other, until a newspaper article alerted them to the case and they took a closer look, which is when they brought the book to the police. It was a Christchurch, New Zealand publication, and this book had the last page ripped out with the words Tamam Shud missing. Also on the last page was faint indentation representing five lines of text, all in capital letters with a possible encryption. The second line was crossed out, and the first three were separated from the last two by straight lines with an X written over them. Even naval intelligence could not crack this code, and it still remains unsolved, either as a riddle or as complete gibberish. The Navy's statement about this was, quote, There is an insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis. The letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code. A reasonable explanation would be that the lines are the initial letters of words of a verse of poetry or such like, end quote. There was a phone number written on the back of this book, which led police to a nurse who lived only hundreds of meters from where the body was found, and at this point eight months prior. She was shown the death mask of the Somerton man, and according to Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, she was said to have been near hysteria and close to fainting at the site. However, she immediately denied knowing him. She was reportedly evasive and refused to speak with investigators about the man, she did admit to once owning a copy of the Rubaiyat, but she claimed that she had given it to a man named Alfred Boxel. Police looked into Alfred Boxel, but he was still alive and found to be in possession of a fully intact copy of the Rubaiyat. Unfortunately, police failed to keep records of this witness or any of her details, which hindered the investigation for the next five decades. Her identity wasn't revealed at the time, and her name and address were discarded, leaving investigators with only her phone number from the book. It wasn't until 50 years later when Detective Gary Feltis matched the telephone number on the book to a 1947 South Australian phone directory. This was an impressive discovery after he had been poring over this directory every day since picking up the case, which at the time was long considered cold. The number led police back to this nurse, Joe Thompson. She continued to be evasive about the case, refused to discuss the man, and maintained this attitude until the day that she passed away in 2007. Joe did have a son named Robin Thompson, but unfortunately he passed away as well before Detective Feltis could speak with him. All of these possible discoveries and leads being considered, however, the question still remains. Who was the Somerton man, and what killed him? The most popular theory in this case is one that I'm sure is the first to cross everyone's mind, that the Somerton man was a spy who just knew too much. This was an extremely odd death, with no direct evidence of foul play, 
However, many believe that the lack of evidence pointing towards poisoning is an espionage trick. This raises only more questions, however. For example, what was a spy doing in the Australian suburbs with an assassin chasing him? To try and explain these questions, theorists claim that the Somerton man was murdered by Russian spies. The body was found at the dawn of the Cold War during a period when paranoia about Soviet spies was very high, and actually a few months prior to the discovery of the Somerton man, a Soviet embassy spy ring had been uncovered in Canberra, Australia. A man who was on Somerton Beach the night the Somerton man died gave a statement in 1959 claiming that he saw, quote, a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge, end quote. Maybe this was someone carrying the body of the Somerton man to its final resting place. At the time, however, this witness assumed that he was just watching someone carrying a drunken friend, and he didn't give the scene a second look. In 2013, it was theorized that Joe Thompson, the nurse whose number was in the Rubaiyat, was a Soviet spy. And this theory was put forth by her own daughter, Kate Thompson. In an interview, Kate said her mother had, quote, a dark side, a very dark side. She said to me she knew who he was, but she wasn't going to let that out of the bag, so to speak. There's always that fear that I've thought that maybe she was responsible for his death, end quote. She also claimed that she heard her mother speaking in hushed Russian over the phone, and her mother had also mentioned that she was teaching English to immigrants from Russia, Kate, however, never knew where her mother had learned Russian from at all. Note that while this is completely fascinating to consider, there is no physical evidence linking Joe Thompson with Russians or to the death of the Somerton man. This is all speculation in a case where speculation is all that can be done. Another theory also cites murder as the manner of death, but in an entirely different way altogether, putting forth that maybe he was killed when a romantic relationship took a wrong turn. This is a more recent theory suggested by University of Adelaide engineering professor Derek Abbott. Professor Derek Abbott developed intense interest in this case, and he was the one who discovered that Joe Thompson had given birth to her son Robin Thompson about a year before the Somerton man was found dead. He was eventually able to locate Robin Thompson's biological daughter, Rachel Egan, who was living in Queensland, Australia. Derek Abbott and Rachel Egan eventually married and had children together, but he was still obsessed with the case and decided to approach it using more scientific methods than those available in 1948 and 1949. Interestingly, Robin Thompson was a former ballet dancer with some of the same physical attributes as the Somerton Man. He had the same strong calves, the same genetic form of earlobes with lobes connected to the skin, and Abbott consulted dental experts who concluded that the Somerton man had hypodontia, which is a very rare genetic condition that caused him to be missing his incisor teeth. They also concluded that photo evidence showed Robin Thompson had this same condition. The chance of a coincidence on this sort of genetic connection is estimated to be 1 in between 10 and 20 million people. Based on all of these discoveries, Abbott theorized that Joe Thompson and the Somerton man, quote, had a liaison and she had Robin, end quote. Should this be the case, maybe the two had a falling out, or she was angry with the Somerton man for not taking responsibility for Robin. This connection would serve to explain why she nearly fainted when she was shown his death mask. If this really were what happened, however, it doesn't make too much sense that she was so hesitant to identify the body. 
Abbott's hard work on the case finally paid off in 2021, and the body of the Somerton man was exhumed. As of May 2021, the remains were in the Forensic Science SA lab in Adelaide, where scientists were determining the best way to analyze them. Lindsay Wilson-Wild, the director of Forensic Science SA, says the process is complicated by the embalming and by the long passage of time. Quote, embalming chemicals are designed to preserve remains, but they do that by breaking down the protein inside the body so that there's nothing available for bacteria to consume. It does have a very detrimental effect in degrading the DNA, end quote. If scientists are able to create a DNA profile, it will be checked against possible relatives first, before being entered into larger DNA databases. However, this step has not yet been reached, and it could be a very long process. Abbott himself thinks that this could take about two years. The lack of signs of violence or foul play does give some credibility to the theory that the Somerton man may have killed himself. In this case, the piece of the Rubaiyat found in his pocket is assumed to be a sort of suicide note, although it does seem strange that if it were, he would have hidden it so well. This theory is actually supported by a case of suicide that shares some similarities with the Somerton man's death, that of immigrant George Marshall. In June of 1945, George Marshall was found dead in Mosman, Australia, after poisoning himself with barbiturates, and with his body was found another copy of the Rubaiyat. While this does seem like a really strange coincidence, apparently the Rubaiyat had become fairly popular in Australia during World War II, and since it centers around themes of life and mortality, it is plausible that both men had the same inspiration to keep a piece of the book with them during their deaths. No matter which theory you find most compelling, the question does still remain, how exactly did the Somerton man die? A well-known professor at the time, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, proposed that he had been poisoned with a very rare kind that would decompose inside the body soon after death. In court, he refused to say the name of the poison he was referring to out loud, believing them to be too dangerous, so instead he wrote down two different types on paper and gave it to the coroner. The note suggested either digitalis or strophanthin. This has given rise to another possible connection to Joe Thompson, since she was a nurse and may have known about or had access to these substances. And again, while this is really compelling to consider, I am in no way implicating Joe Thompson, especially since she is no longer alive to defend herself. This is one of the most confusing and completely fascinating cases that I have ever come across, and yet another case where I am left simply not knowing what to think. Each theory does have aspects that start to bring together a clearer picture of what might have happened, but they all also fall apart at some point without having any idea how the Somerton man truly died. Joe Thompson is obviously an extremely interesting character here, and despite there being no physical evidence that implicates her, there is no denying that her phone number was in the back of the copy of the Rubaiyat. However, if she was linked to Soviet spies in any capacity, it doesn't seem like leaving your phone number somewhere to be discovered is the mark of a good spy. It does seem like she had to have been involved somehow, but how or why or when we will never know. It has now been over 70 years since the body of the Somerton man was discovered, and no doubt another 70 will pass without any answers in this case, unless there is a monumental discovery to be made. Until that day, we can remain in awe at the sheer mystery here, 
and hope that at some point the Somerton man will be able to reclaim his identity. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about the mysterious death of the unidentified Somerton man, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. If you have a theory or a comment of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Crime Bistro Podcast to leave a comment and to see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.